2: In this episode, we'll speak with two lung cancer experts about the importance of lung cancer screening. We'll explore myths and facts, as well as who's getting left behind in lung cancer screening. Let me introduce my first guest, Dr. Jeff Yang. He's a thoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital, assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, and founder of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. Welcome, Dr. Yang, how are you?
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing very well, thank you.
2: So I usually open these episodes by asking my guests about their health discoveries. And I know you have a particularly impactful story about motivated you in your work, particularly in your work with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. So could you please share with us, what was that aha moment around lung cancer screening for you?
3: Thank you for that question. For me, I was very close with my grandfather spent a lot of time with him. He taught me how to throw a baseball and we spent a lot of time watching football and in his garden. And it was a shock to learn that he had lung cancer. And when we found out, it was already advanced stage. The entire experience was very challenging for me. I was there when we learned the diagnosis and also there taking care of him and during the last days of his life. And it really impacted me and inspired me to go into medicine. I went into medicine because of him. Throughout this entire time of my medical training, it's always haunted me, this question of what would have happened if we could have just discovered it earlier? Because we know that if you can discover it earlier, there are treatments that can help people live much longer. And I I wish he had seen me get into medical school and then graduate. From that experience, I have really wanted to focus on lung cancer screening and help other families not have to go through what I went through. So that's really what started my passion in lung cancer screening and early detection of lung cancer. And it's something that I've been working on ever since
2: it's really impactful. I know when we sort of have these dreams, aspirations that we're sharing with our elders that have sort of guided us to our path and then they can't see that impact in our lives. It's it definitely is something that sticks with us. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. And it strikes me when we think about lung cancer screening, it's based on a lot of factors, but mostly age and your history or current smoking status. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to be high risk for lung cancer and someone who should undergo lung cancer screening.
3: That's correct. There's a lot of different criteria for lung cancer screening, and that's partly what makes it a little harder to uh, raise awareness about. There are three main criteria. One is you have to be between 50 and 80 years old to be eligible, as well as have smoked for 20 pack years or more. And then you have to either be currently smoking or have stopped smoking within the past 15 years. In terms of pack year, the way to think about it is somebody has been smoking one pack a day for 20 years, then their pack year history is 20 pack years. And there are some calculators online or healthcare providers can help somebody figure out their pack year smoking history.
2: I think that's such an important point because that criteria is part of what we look at when we're recommending screening. So I'm a primary care doctor. So definitely talking to patients about, okay, so what's your pack, your history? And the way we calculate that is essentially exactly what you said. So how many packs a day do you smoke? So if you smoke 10 cigarettes a day, that's about half a pack a day. So if you've smoked half a pack for 40 years, that's a 20 pack year smoking history. If you smoke a pack a day for 20 years, that's a 20-pack year smoking history.
3: You did 100% correct, but it is hard to calculate pack years sometimes. So as part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, I go out there in the community with our students and doctors who are all volunteers. And when we're trying to calculate pack year while teaching somebody about lung cancer screening, it can be very confusing sometimes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's just, again, important to be talking to your trusted healthcare provider to talk through your own personal risk. So, what does it mean to be screened for lung cancer? How does that work? Can you explain that to us?
3: Yes. I'm glad we're talking about this because lung cancer screening itself is actually really easy. It's just lying on a scanner for a couple minutes and it doesn't hurt. The scanner takes pictures of your lungs and allows doctors who look at these pictures, they're called radiologists, to see if there's anything that is concerning and needs further evaluation. It's covered by health insurance, it's covered by private insurance, and it's covered by Medicare, so it's free, which is great. Some of the other screening tests are a little bit more invasive. This is really non-invasive. You just walk in and you lie down for a couple of minutes, you get scanned and then the screening is done.
2: I think that's an important point too, is that we call it a low dose CT scan. The low dose is the low dose of radiation. I think a lot of people have concerns around that when they understand that they're going for screening. So I think that's a really important point to make with patients. And that, to your point, CT scan is not invasive, it's painless, it's not like going for the mammogram, you know, it's something that can give you information very quickly. And you're a thoracic surgeon, so what's the difference between finding someone with that early cancer versus someone in those late stages?
3: I think it's important to emphasize that in 2023, we have really good treatments for all stages of lung cancer now. Even the most advanced stage lung cancer, there are much better treatments now than there were when I was a medical student. Ideally, it's better to find lung cancer earlier because it is simpler to treat when it's earlier. For example, if somebody's getting a lung cancer screening test and we find the lung cancer early and it's only stage one, so it's only a small lung cancer, then the typical treatments are surgery for most people who are healthy and otherwise able to undergo general anesthesia. Also, this particular type of radiation therapy called SBRT or stereotactic body radiotherapy, which is a very focused beam of radiation. Those two options, either surgery or SBRT, can be used to treat early stage lung cancer.
2: I am very, very curious about what your organization does. So the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. What-
1: we'll be back after a quick break.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: And now, back to our episode.
3: What are some of your goals for this organization? And where do you work? Thank you. I I appreciate you for asking. So it first started off when I was in residency, just me and one other student. There are now 500 students and doctors volunteering for this initiative. And We're all volunteer, which I'm very proud of, just people spending their free time uh, weekends or evenings working on this. And we go out there in the community to teach people about lung cancer screening and to try to get them connected to their own doctor or another screening center to get them screened for lung cancer. And so far we've had about 325 events to teach community members, and we've reached at least 20,000 people through these efforts. So, on one level, that's what we do. Another aspect of what we do is try to raise awareness through advocacy by working with mayors and governors and Congress members. So for example, one of our leaders, Alex Potter, wrote a draft of a resolution to express the support for the goals of National Lung Cancer Awareness Month back in 2020. Some of us and our team members further refined that draft with the offices of Senator Tina Smith and Marco Rubio. That draft became the actual Senate Resolution 780, which was then passed unanimously by the Senate. So. All 100 senators expressed support for raising awareness for lung cancer by designating November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And also specifically for the very first time in Senate history, expressing support for the early detection of lung cancer.
2: That's amazing. And so when I'm kind of listening to what's resonating with me and what I'm thinking about is one, understanding how common it is so that you are talking to these public officials, raising awareness that there is a screening test out there and helping people understand, you know, whether or not they fit that criteria, that's a piece of it. And then the third piece is access to the actual test to get
3: it done. When we're out there in the community, at least in my experience, most people have never heard about lung cancer screening. And in fact, right now of the people who need and should be getting screened, only 6% of them are actually getting screened. So only 6% of people who are eligible to get screened are getting screened, which means that almost nobody is getting screened and also nobody is hearing about it. It's interesting. I mean, we've been to all kinds of neighborhoods and everybody's heard of a mammogram for breast cancer pap smear for cervical cancer, colonoscopy for colon cancer, um, but not lung cancer screening. I think people are worried about whether or not it's harmful, if there are any harms to lung cancer screening. I do want to assure everybody who's listening that that radiation dose is very, very low, very safe, and very unlikely to cause any issues. I think another area that potentially people are worried about is whether there is a high false positive rate. So in other words, does the lung cancer screening actually spot out things that are not cancer and lead to invasive tests that are not needed? And that false positive rate is also low. It is along the lines of a mammogram. So it's very safe to get lung cancer screening and also very safe to go through the additional tests that might come from lung cancer screening.
2: What I struggle with is who's being left behind. Clearly, the majority of people with lung cancer are people that have smoked. And so it makes sense with our recommendations. That's who we're gearing this test to. I'm curious about your thoughts. What are the latest studies on people outside of that?
3: So right now, about 15 to 20% of people with lung cancer have never smoked. Unfortunately, the guidelines do not have anything that address people who have never smoked who might be at risk of developing lung cancer. Right now, the guidelines are solely focused on screening people who have smoked. But that doesn't mean that people who have never smoked should not get the benefit of early detection. And this is something that we as a field were actively working on through research to figure out how best to detect lung cancer among people who have never spoke, but who are at high risk of developing lung cancer. I would say that for folks who feel like they have a lot of risk factors for lung cancer, so for example, a f- strong family history of lung cancer, maybe their brothers and sisters and parents that all had lung cancer or had exposure to air pollution and secondhand smoke, asbestos and radon, to please talk to your doctor about it and see whether or not screening is appropriate for you. Uh, even though the USPSDF guidelines do not recommend screening for people who have never smoked, the American College of Chest Physicians, in their guidelines, they have talked about how it is reasonable and appropriate to consider conversations about this with your doctor if you have risk factors for lung cancer. It's also worth mentioning in Asia, a lot of people, in particular women, have never smoked. The overwhelming majority of Asian women with lung cancer have never smoked. So in Asian countries, They've really been focusing, especially Taiwan has spearheaded efforts to include people who have never smoked in their guidelines. In fact, right now, Taiwan started a national lung cancer screening program where if you have never smoked but you are a woman between 45 to 75 years of age and have had a family history of lung cancer, meaning if there are people in your family who have had lung cancer, you would be eligible to get screened. And for men, that would be 50 to 74 years. So this is still an active area of development. And I really hope that with research, for example, uh, Dr. Alicia Sequest and her team at Mass General, they've been working on Sybil, which is an artificial intelligence platform to help with lung cancer prediction risk. And then there are also a lot of teams, looking at biomarkers. I hope that with all of these efforts, we'll be able to give you a much better answer in the near future on how to best detect lung cancer early in people who have never smoked.
2: What should we be counseling our patients who have been exposed to decades of secondhand smoke?
3: So for somebody who has had a lot of exposure to secondhand smoke or other environmental factors like radon, asbestos, air pollution, to talk to their doctor about whether or not screening would be something that is important and helpful for them. Right now, none of the guidelines officially recommend screening for people who have never smoked. However, certain guidelines like the guidelines from the American College of Chest Physicians have recommended that for people who might have a high risk of developing lung cancer based off of different risk factors to consider screening for them on a a case-by-case basis.
2: This is such an important conversation. I want to thank you so much. I'd like to give you the last word on what you would like to get out there about lung cancer screening and things that you just like to help patients overcome in terms of their barriers to even knowing that this exists.
3: It would be great for us to tell a loved one about lung cancer screening, particularly if you know somebody who has smoked or who has other risk factors who might be at higher risk of developing lung cancer to tell them about lung cancer screening, that it's safe, it doesn't hurt, it's covered by insurance, so it's free and it's easy and it's fast, that would be incredible. That would really help raise awareness about lung cancer screening and probably save many lives.
2: We just wrapped up our discussion with Dr. Jeff Yang. I'm really looking forward to following up our discussion with Dr. Nargis Flores. Dr. Flores is Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School and the associate editor of JAMA Oncology. Welcome to WebMD Health Discovered, Dr. Flores. It is my pleasure to be here. Well, we're looking forward to talking to you. But before we dig into my questions, would you mind sharing a little bit about your own health discovery? What brought you around to studying stigma and bias in lung cancer screening and lung cancer care?
1: So all days back to shows, as many of our stories to start In my case, I was a first year fellow at the Mayo Clinic, and I was in my first month of consults, and I encountered a younger woman with no previous tobacco exposure that was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. I walked into the room, and her first words were, do not tell my family. And as I got to know her that day, I learned that she was so afraid of the stigma associated with lung cancer that she wanted to keep her diagnosis away from her family. Little did not know that actually the problem was bigger than that. She had EGFR, mutant nose muscle lung cancer, a slowly alert that she had told her family that she had breast cancer instead. I saw her coming to my clinic dressed old in pink to follow the character that she had created with metastatic breast cancer instead of her diagnosis. At the end of her journey, it was heartbreaking to know all the things she had done to keep her diagnosis concealed from her family members. Her husband learned that she had lung cancer the last four months of her journey. Despite working with psychology, palliative care, she has seen first line when members of her community were diagnosed with lung cancer and were isolated, alienated by their own community. She didn't want that. Even when she was having very hard-to-treat brain metastasis, she had pre-reading notes that says, do not tell my family I have lung cancer. And she would give this tiny handwritten note to the ER nurse, to the ER doctor. She was more worried about that, that unfortunately the bigger issue we were facing. That was a wake-up call for me. I have written about her story, but I still cry when I remember her obituary that her family sent me that said that she died of breast cancer. So because of the stigma of the disease, this young woman needed to live for two and a half years under this pretend disease while carrying the burden of lung cancer. And nobody deserves that. That switched my career and my goals and is to make people to be aware. More women die of lung cancer than any other disease. And there are many more cases of lung cancer in patients with no previous tobacco exposure than cervical, endometrial, and uterine cancer combined.
2: But we don't talk about it. Wow. You talked about how common lung cancer is in never smokers, more common than we think, and more common than in other cancers that are associated with smoking. Is this a very common story in terms of women, young women not wanting to share that they have lung cancer or having the stigma? How common is that?
1: I would say at least one-fourth of my patients do not feel comfortable sharing a lung cancer diagnosis. They don't get the warm feeling compared to other malignancies. And it also has to do with the stigma related to the disease. They don't get like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know what they get? They get do you smoke, that you keep this to yourself. Because it's the belief that if you have tobacco use in the past, you deserve the disease and nobody deserves cancer. There's many other lifestyle behaviors associated with cancer. If they have colon cancer, nobody tells them, do you eat red meat? Do you eat ham and turkey? That doesn't happen, and there's a direct correlation with that. So a lot of my patients stays in the very inner circle, and they don't share it. They don't get that warm feeling of, oh, I'm so sorry. They get accusatory comments, a lot of prejudgments, a lot of like, oh, you did this to yourself. Many of these patients may have smoked for three months in college. And I'm very honest, a lot of people try a cigarette in college, Mm -hmm. right? So that shouldn't be the wrong stigma. Nobody deserves to get lung cancer. And the only thing you need to get lung cancer is to have one lung. You don't even have to have two because I have patients post lung transplant with one lung that have developed lung cancer.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting. So currently our screening recommendations we just talked about with Dr. Yang are really taking into account age and smoking status. That's who we're looking to to screen for lung cancer. I think it's really important even for that population to not, as you said, stigmatize because of the smoking status to even suggest or think that that's someone who, you know, they knew what was coming to them or that they somehow deserve cancer. But then there's a secondary point, which is younger people and younger women in particular who are more commonly diagnosed with lung cancer and often have a never smoking history. It means that they've never smoked or, like you said, a little bit here or there, nothing that would be appreciable to sort of add to their lung cancer risk. So what do we do about early detection? for this population? How do we address just evaluating or talking to these people? Because it's it's hard to know, right? Who is at higher risk at, at a young age?
1: One thing that's very important for everybody is to collect family history for two reasons. First, secondhand smoke. We are millennials and the boomers and the Generation X, there was higher smoking rates. So a lot of us may have been exposed to secondhand smoke growing up. Second, there is a relationship with certain subgroups of lung cancer with genomic mutations. We know there's a EGFR, familiar salt type. We can see lung cancer and Lynch syndrome. So family history is very important when it comes to risk factor. But the main thing is to understand that lung cancer is not a disease of older men with tobacco history because a younger woman takes three times longer to be diagnosed with lung cancer than a cross match male. So not only the younger patients and that they don't qualify for lung cancer screening, it's also a lot of gender bias. That We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios Enjoy the show.
1: And now, back to our episode. Women do not get lung cancer. So the second thing, besides asking our patients about family history, is to get away from the bias and understand that women get lung cancer. A lot of my women get gaslighted. My young patient this morning, this morning, 37 years old, was thought she was anxious and she was sent home with Xanax. It was an eight centimeter mass. And that's what she had, the chest pressure. So removing the whole thing that women are complainers or everything is anxiety or back in the day hysteria. And we learned that from cardiovascular disease. You remember how many women were sent from the ER where they were having a heart attack because they were called anxious? Same thing happens with lung cancer. Oh, you're a busy woman. You're a busy mother or two. The most be anxiety. Here's
2: on Lexapro.
1: So I think that you need to be open-minded and remove the anchor bias and gender bias that follows this woman.
2: So that's a really, really important point because when we're thinking about at a population level, there's going to be a lot of people that do have concerns and anxiety and concerns about what's going on in their life. In that group of people, What other symptoms should we be thinking about to then eventually say, wait, we can't just say that this is anxiety. We have to look further or we have to go deeper. What are some of the other symptoms we should be thinking about or having our patients sort of understand that these may also be present?
1: Understanding that, you know, symptoms can mean many illnesses and the listeners surely consult with their doctors. The main thing is a cough, a cough that doesn't go away. A cough that doesn't get better, we allergy medications. And you shouldn't let the cough run for weeks or months. If after two weeks the cough is no better, we're seeking care. And when you seek care, it's important to have imaging, checks, x ray, basic information. I have a lot of women that had a mammogram before they had a checks, x ray, despite having chief complaints of cough. Worsening shortness of breath that cannot be explained by other reasons, right? If you were able to run, you are not able to run. I have a lot of patients that are runners. Why is it happening? Don't blame it in your age. Don't blame me that you gained some weight during the pandemic. Why is that happening? Why you're having more shortness of breath? Of course, any hemoptysis or cough with blood should be an emergency <laughs> sign. But the problem with lung cancer is that many patients will not have symptoms until the disease becomes metastatic. Some patients may have changes in their voices because the laryngeal nerve is affected. And another thing that a lot of my younger women experience is a scapular pain or upper pain in the back. A pain that doesn't get better with rest. A pain that persists despite conservative management like massage or heating therapy. But don't let it run for months. And if you feel, this is to anybody, if you feel your doctor is not listening to you, Find a new one. And I'm being very straightforward with this recommendation because we shouldn't just think there is anxiety. So cough, shortness
2: of breath, as scapular pain, or upper back pain. One of the main things that I always like to share with my patients is that no one knows you better than you. So there are certain things that in general, when I'm sitting with you in the office, I need you to tell me what it is that's most concerning to you, why it's concerning, and all of the other things that are also going on. Because that helps us direct which way we're going to go, where we're going to look first, what further testing we need to do. So I think your point is really important in that if you recognize that this is not you, that this cough is lingering more than two weeks. I think in primary care, we often think a chronic cough past four weeks and you've been trying different treatments. You're trying to do stuff for the post-nasal drip. You're making sure that it's not reflux and it's not going away. You have these additional symptoms, of shortness of breath, the pain in the upper back. When you don't feel like you, you have to continue that conversation with your healthcare provider.
1: And that chest pressure to add it on, doesn't have to be full on chest pain. You're going to have a heart attack. It's a chest pressure that is no situational. It's just something that you feel. I have a patient that tells me it's not the elephant compared to the heart attack. She tells me it feels like somebody has a hand on my chest and doesn't let me take a deep breath. And there is no situational. It happens anytime. It's all the time present there. That's something I often hear from my younger women as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's another key thing too, is that sometimes things can come and go. Like you have a problem, a symptom, it goes away for months at a time and you're okay. It happens once a year. This is something that is not going away. It's just constantly there and it's not getting better. That's a key thing to be talking to your doctor about. What else have we missed in terms of what you're seeing in your work with regard to bias, stigma, and equity issues when it comes to thinking about lung cancer in different populations besides those that we know to screen?
1: I think one important aspect is intersectionality. So we talk about gender bias, but the population that's a higher risk are women of color because we have the intersection of racism with gender bias. So Dr. Warner for NGH, Published this paper. I think now we're talking about four years ago that women of color were the group that were less likely to be offered lung cancer screening, despite qualifying for lung cancer screening six times less likely compared to white men. So intersectionality is really harmful to women of color because they have to face you know bias from every angle. So these populations are the population at highest risk for disparities for lung cancer screening and they're women of color. And it's ironic how embedded it is, you know, to do the mammograms, because I have women with metastatic lung cancer, they're like, oh, undo for my mammogram. And I'm like, uh, we just can You head to toe <laughs> and we have bigger fish to fry. So lung cancer screening should be seen like that, particularly for women of color, because it's life-saving for these populations that otherwise will not get early testing. And I, I know there is a lot about false positive results, for lung cancer is by far still the number one woman killer by cancer. There are so many women die of lung cancer that lung cancer screening is one of the few things that we get us to improve these current numbers. Another factor that I think is important when you're talking about this part is also populations in rural U.S., all areas that are remote. those cities scan is a privilege. I used to be at May. No Mayo Clinic is this disparity site, but around Mayo Clinic. So the populations that are in rural U.S. that may don't have access to lung cancer screening. And ironically, there's high rates of smoking in those populations. So sometimes it's only when the truck can come by. And a lot of these patients get lost to follow up as well.
2: I mean, there's so many, so many important factors. One, being aware. I think that you're really helping us make sure that we're thinking about it, not just for our older men smokers, but our younger women non smokers as well. And then access to the ability to have the screening test done. If we meet the criteria, we already sort of have recognized that meeting the criteria doesn't necessarily get everyone who is at risk for lung cancer. But if you are in that group, then how do we sort of close the gap and not leave people behind just because of biases, because of race and gender? So I really, really thank you so much for the discussion. I'd love to close all my episodes with a bite-sized action item. So what would you say to anyone who's listening who's concerned about lung cancer for themselves or lung cancer in someone that they love?
1: I would say you speak up. Share your concerns with your doctor because it's impossible for us to read your mind. And if you're worried, you're worried because of something. Nobody gets worried about lung cancer just randomly. They must have been exposure, a family member, something that you learned. So speak up to your doctor about your fears and your concerns regarding lung cancer. That's a good starting point for the discussion.
2: Thank you so much. It's so important to take away that lung cancer is the most common cause of death from cancer in the United States. So if you have someone in your life who might benefit from lung cancer screening, talk about it. We've also learned not to minimize our symptoms, particularly when it comes to lung cancer. If you are suffering from shortness of breath, pressure or pain in your chest that's not going away, and a cough that's lasted for several weeks, bring it up with your doctor and see if further testing is indicated. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe.